From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 37. We've got an awesome guest from the CSP Florida staff, a new addition to the team that we're really excited about. Um, I think you're going to really pick up a ton with respect to not just hitting mechanics, but in particular approach, particularly as you work towards the higher levels of baseball performance. Today's episode is brought to you by Lumberland Company. Step up to the plate this holiday season and knock your gift out of the park. Lumberland has something for every fan in your life. Their baseball bat mugs are fully customizable with engraved text and even photos. The mugs hold 12 ounces of beverages, and their team and player mugs are perfect for showing true fandom all year round. Their new release baseball bat bottle openers are a unique and practical stocking stuffer. Any baseball fan will love using these to crack open their next drink in style. Team designs and custom engravings are also available. I've used these several times for gifts for baseball fans in my life, and they're always a big hit. This Friday, check out their website for exclusive Black Friday savings on bat mugs and bottle opener. Visit lumberlen.com. That's www.lumberlend.com and cross holiday shopping off your to-do list. Today's guest was drafted out of the state of Texas by the Boston Red Sox in the fifth round of the 2007 draft. He was a three-sport athlete in high school and was originally drafted as a shortstop, but the Red Sox converted him into a third baseman while in the minor leagues. He went on to make his major league debut in 2012 with the Red Sox and won a World Series in 2013. Over parts of six MLB seasons, he also played for the Padres, Brewers, and Rangers. He retired last year with 43 career home runs. Just this summer, he joined the Cressy Sports Performance Florida staff as our hitting coordinator, and he's instantly become a hit with a lot of our athletes, ranging from the youth levels all the way up to the professional ranks. In this podcast, you'll quickly realize why that's the case. Please welcome Will Middlebrooks to the show. Welcome to the show, Will. Hey, what's up, Eric? Yeah, happy to be here. This is exciting. Um, how terrified are you to have to spend every day with me, though? <laughs> um, I think I'm going to make my schedule where I only see you like three days a week. Exactly. I know, I, and, and Wednesdays, if I'm there post like 1 p.m., I won't have to deal with you. Well played. You already know the tricks of the trade. <laughs> um, so, you know, we're going to – I always joke that like interviewing retired guys is actually better because they can be like brutally honest about like, you know, if you bring a hitter on right now, he doesn't want to reveal all his secrets and all that stuff. Right. So we had Sam Fold on recently. He was pretty uh, pretty candid about his stuff, but let's talk about you as as a high school athlete first, and then we'll kind of delve into the coaching stuff later. You were a three sport athlete in Texas. That doesn't really happen anymore, does it? That's a, that's no. A I mean, everybody's so specialized now. They play one sport year round if they can. Like in Florida, you're lucky enough where you have the weather to play baseball year round. Mm-hmm. I never even once thought of doing that. Uh, I think that just goes back to my dad and. He played a ton of sports growing up, and uh, you know he introduced everything to me. He didn't force me to play anything. He just he introduced everything at a young age. I loved anything that had to do with a ball, anything athletic, competitive. I was in. So yeah, if if I could play it and I had enough time, I would make it happen. 
it's, it's, we always talk to athletes about like, if you build the broad foundation, like the specific skill development in the context of your sport becomes much easier later on. Did you find that was the case as you started getting into more like advanced hitting approaches and mechanical ideas and things like that, that they came quicker when you were 17, 18, 19, as opposed to, you know, if the, a lot of your counterparts who were probably getting those things thrown at them at 13 when they had a really narrow base. Yeah, for sure. And I think like, the era I was in, I guess I graduated high school in 2007. So specializing in sports wasn't really happening that much. I mean, you get to the bigger cities, Dallas, Houston, there, there's those kids that play baseball year round or basketball year round, but it wasn't like it is now. <clears throat> like you don't, you don't, you didn't see it that much, especially in small town, East Texas, where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Everybody did everything because that's just how it was. That's all we knew. So yeah, I mean, to answer your question, I, I just, I think it just had to do with the, with the era I grew up in and, and the, the overall area of where I grew up in the United States. It just didn't happen. Absolutely. And you know, I, I think it was, it was also kind of telling that, you know, you were a, you were an athletic, like three sport athlete, you were a shortstop, you ran well. So it gave you the versatility once the time came to go to pro ball. Like you moved around and played a bunch of different positions as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it gave me my best opportunity to be on the field and help my team win. If if I'm stuck in one position uh, and there's somebody that maybe is better than me at that position, then I'm on the bench, right? So if I can play multiple positions, uh, I can, you know, whether if I can hit lead off, if I can be a power guy, whatever it may be, the more versatile I can be is it gives me the best opportunity to be on the field and be successful. One of the things that I think is interesting about you is you, you didn't just get to the big leagues quickly. You thrived right away. So there's a quote in your, in your first 41 games with the Red Sox, you batted 326 with nine home runs and 34 RBIs, the most RBIs to start a career for a member of the Red Sox since Walt Dropo in 1949-1950. Walt, Walt Dropo was a, a college teammate of my grandfather at the University of Connecticut. So, <laughs> so I, I'm curious, what were the lessons so obviously you went up, you thrived, then the league kind of adjusted to you. But um, what were the lessons you learned when you got to the big leagues, you know, how it adapted to you and what you had to learn to, to continue to be successful in that first year? Oh, man, I think just always, always being ready to adapt, never uh, get complacent and just learn every day, whether that's from the veteran players around you, whether it's your coaching staff, who most of those guys played in the big leagues and had successful careers themselves, um, or just even even your opponents uh, watching video. I mean, there's so much uh, in front of you to learn from every day. It's just the it, can you open your eyes and, and be a sponge and soak it all in and um, really take every day, you know, go to bed every night and look back and say, you know, how can I get better today? What did I do wrong? Just <clears throat> be brutally honest with yourself, I think, was something that I, th- I think found I found uh, that helped me out a lot was being able to look in the mirror and 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 say this is what I do really bad and how can I get better? Is that the kind of advice you throw at? Like, what do you say to a you know to a Boba Shad or a Michael Chavez or some of these guys that have gone yeah. up and just absolutely raked in a first half season? Like, what do you what do you do to continue that success? Well, it's not going to last. I mean, the, you. you Mike Trout's aren't floating out there on every team. Like mm-hmm. he's so, he's so special because he is able to be that consistent every year. Mm-hmm. You look at the a, quote unquote best players in the league. They have down years. Mm-hmm. They have tough half seasons. They you know they go in slumps. That's the game. We we're in a negative sport. Mm-hmm. You know you, you always hear people say you go 
three for 10 and you're a really good player. You know, that's a lot of failure. So I think learning how to fail and, um, I think another thing that I learned, you know, later in my career that really helped was you learn to invest in your, in your body and your, and your training, your lifting, your diet. Uh, that, that, that's something that I didn't understand early in my career. And then, you know, I think later on when that became more important, I'm dealing with injuries, I'm dealing with getting older. Uh, it becomes more important. If I had been on top of that when I was younger, I think I could have prolonged my career. I mean, obviously I had a bad injury that injured, you know, that kept me out, kept me from playing and, and getting back in the game. But, um, without that, you know, my diet, my training, if I put more into that earlier in my career, I would have been a lot better spot. And, you know, we joked that you're retired. You, you can spill the beans now. Like looking back, like wh- how did guys get you out? What, what was there a pitch that was impossible for you to hit? Was it a part of your approach that, you know, that, that led to some guys having more success against you? Um, I don't, I, I would never say that it's like anything impossible to hit. I mean, everybody has trouble with the hard slider. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's not made to be hit. It looks like a fastball by the time you, especially with higher velos, it, it guys throwing 92 mile per hour sliders is, is a joke. You got center guard yeah. doing that on a daily basis. Well, by the time the ball gets to a certain point to the plate and you have to make a decision to swing is it still looks like a fastball. Mm-hmm. So, I mean that, that was really hard for me and that's why I, you know, Max Scherzer, who we know very well, uh, <laughs> you know, I had really, I had a really hard time with him. He dominated me. He was, yeah, he had a hard slider. That's his good out pitch. You know, he, he's now added later in his career, a really good changeup and he's got three really good pitches and that's why he's being able to get older and still be just as consistent and good. Absolutely. Well, now on, on the other side of it, you got to brag a little bit. Who did you love to face? Like what kind of pitcher <laughs> and anybody in particular that jumps out? You know, I, I hit Tommy Hunter well. Um, there was a joke going with my older teammates. If there was like a Hall of Fame pitcher on like the tail end of his career, I, <laughs> I could get him. Uh, just, I don't know. I, I loved lefties. I loved lefties that threw hard and they had like, the hard lefty slider that was coming into me, mm-hmm. I handled really well. So like cutters, sliders, you know, Kershaw, Bumgarner, those guys I saw well because my swing path was directed to pull to left field. Mm-hmm. Um, and they pitched right into that. They loved to pitch into righty. So that was right into my wheelhouse. No doubt. And, you know, so if there was a scouting report on you, what was it? Like what would, what would opposing teams, you know, speak to in respect to mechanics, ideal approaches, things <clears> like that? Yeah, early early in my career, I, I used the whole field a lot, and then uh, you know I had a really I had a broken wrist at the end of my rookie year, um, and I feel like I really lost some bat speed after that, and I started guessing not guessing but cheating the fastball in because people would come in on me knowing about my wrist issue, and then that was all of a sudden susceptible to the breaking pitches away because I'm cheating to get to the heater in so. Um, I think I got away from the big part of the field, middle of the field approach, which I think, and we've talked about this, uh, can, can kind of smooth out some of the mechanical flaws in a swing. And uh, I got away from that trying to basically, it's like in golf, if you, if you slice, you aim left, right? So I was trying to like correct my issues in game and, and you just can't do that. Let's let's delve into that a little bit more because that that was super intriguing. <clears throat> we sat down with one of our minor league guys the other day, and you you talked. You actually dropped the line. Approach can smooth out a lot of mechanical issues, and and it kind of led into the discussion in the middle of field approach. So so elaborate for us. How can approach smooth out mechanical faults or challenges? Um, I just think guys 
fall in the trap of, all right, this I'm facing a righty, righty on righty. Guy's got a good sinker. He's clearly going to use that into me. Um, so I'm going to look in. I'm going to get the head out. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking pull, 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 right? There's no way you're thinking in, in, and stay up the middle. It just it doesn't work that way. So all of a sudden, your mechanics are, are long. You're long to the ball. You're, everything's moving your directionally to the, to the left side of the field. And uh, if he throws anything but that pitch, even if he throws that pitch, you're probably yanking it foul because that's what he wants. He wants to sink it in there and, and let you yank it foul. But then he gets to his slider, cutter, whatever, even a fastball away, you're in trouble because everything's moving to left. All right, so let's get to the middle of the field. Uh, if if he comes in, it's probably going to run off the plate. So I'm going to lay off it if I'm looking middle of the plate, middle of the field. So anything over the big part of the field, I'm doing damage. Now, if he does go to off speed and I'm staying up the middle of the field, I'm able to stay on that pitch because my direction is and energy of my swing, everything is moving up towards the middle of the field where the ball is coming from. And uh, just it keeps you on the off speed. It keeps you, uh, your shoulders, you know, square long enough to stay on that pitch that's moving away from you. That's a great point. Um, and I'm, you know, hitting has changed a lot in the, in the past few years, right? You know, dating back to when you made your debut, but how would your approach be different in 2009? You know, if, if you had your, your 2012 bat speed, you know, pre-injury compared to what it was back then, I mean, do, do you see yourself got, that, as a guy who would have changed with it or were you a, a little bit ahead of your time? And that's what explains some of your early success. Yeah, I think I, I may have been ahead of it. Um, you know, I had really good coaching in the minor leagues, uh, with guys helping me develop an approach. And, and we talked about the other day with the kid in the office. I really didn't develop a really good approach or playing at the plate and become somewhat consistent with it, um, at the plate until I was in, you know, double A. And I had my first really good year, hit over 300, hit 18 homers, hit over, over 80 RBIs. And I'm, Last month of the season, I went to AAA. So those numbers were in five months. And that was the first time I really developed an approach. I was fa- actually facing really good pitching. You get the AA, you actually see prospects with, you know, you see guys throwing hard. You guys they can start to locate. And uh, I, I really got to – it opened my eyes to say, okay, look, it's not just about talent and athleticism anymore. It's beyond that. It's it's more of a cerebral game. I need to have a plan at the plate and – Okay, so we can develop that all we want, but the consistency was the key thing for me and, and focus on being able to keep that and not change when I have a couple bad games. You even said something in that conversation, which was full of like these good nuggets. You said your goal was to be locked in for 80% of your at-bats. You know, I think like everyone on the planet, you know, thinks mental skills, you got to be there 100% of the time. And if you have five plate appearances, they're, they're not all going to be pristine, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, like 80%. Of course, yes, we want to be locked in every pitch. Every That's just, it's unrealistic. Um, now I can look back and say that because, you know, even being around really good players in my career, they would say the same thing. Like, look, you're going to throw away X amount of at-bats every year. It's just how the game is. It's, it's you, you, you're in a rut, you're in a slump. Who knows what's going on off the field? You, these We forget that baseball players are real human beings and they have, lives and families uh and, and real life things going on at home and then they have to just turn all that off and mm-hmm. compete at the highest level uh, in baseball so um there's a lot going into that and that focus and i think if you can be upwards of 80 percent you're you're in the top echelon of the league i'm i'm curious so you played along some really good hitters um you know david ortiz put on like the 
probably the greatest postseason <laughs> hitting show in history when you guys won the World Series in 2013, and you got to watch it right up front. What what made Ortiz such a great hitter? Like what 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 was what separated him? And then you know what are the characteristics of some of the other you know great hitters you were around at that time? Right. Um, as far as David goes, I mean this guy was the most. Well, I'll start off saying he's he's known just this big power, raw power. And you think he just goes up there, grips the bat as hard as he can, and swings as hard as he can. There's so much behind the scenes that David Ortiz would do as far as his his cage work, uh, his video prep. I mean, this guy spent over an hour every day in the video room. And this is a guy that has been the league. When I played with him, had already been the league for 15 years. He knew every pitcher. I mean, obviously the young guys he wasn't familiar with, but most of these veteran guys were facing, he's got 50-plus at-bats against them. I mean, he knows how they're going to attack him. Um, there were multiple times in my career where we'd be sitting in the dugout after one of his at-bats talking about it, talking about the pitcher, talking about the game. And he said, you know what, next at-bat, this actually happened in the World Series against Michael Walker, where it was game six, and uh, we're in the tunnel watching one of his at-bats, because you know the, the batting cages are right, right behind the dugout in there. So we're sitting in there, and he's like, if he throws me that, he just missed a changeup, and he got out. He said, if he throws me that change up again, I'm going to hit it out to left <laughs> over the monster. I'm like, I, I bet you will. Like, whatever. Do your thing. So his next at bat, I'm watching it because that's in the back of my mind. I'm like, I wonder if he can pull this off. This is game six of the World Series. It's not like a backfield game in spring training. And uh, Michael Walker, you know, he's pumping 96, 97, throwing a really good downhill change up. It just kind of falls off the, the screen. It's nasty. And uh first pitch of the at-bat, 96, like top of the zone, and he fouls it straight back, like dead on it. I'm going, okay, he's told me he's looking for a change-up. And he just fouled 90, like dead on, 96, the top of the zone. Next pitch, change-up, pulls it foul like a mile. And I'm like, this is unbelievable. A couple pitches later, he hangs another changeup and he hits it out over the monster. <laughs> this is in the World Series, and he, and he he literally told me, and no one believed me. I'm like, he literally told me he, he's going to hit a changeup out, and it just blows my. That's how good and prepared, and it's just back to his work, and he knows exactly how they're going to attack him. In certain counts, what he can narrow it down to what he's going to get, and then. Just his natural ability to do what he does with his mechanics, with as much movement as he has, but he can control his body so much. It was just unbelievable to see in person. That's awesome. Um, a lot of people are calling baseball ugly now because of the, <laughs> you know, the, the crazy high strikeouts and home runs. You know, there's a, a big time like move towards the shift. Um, they're blaming these factors for, you know, plus, you know, the length of games for the declining attendance, all that stuff. Where do you see things going from a hitting standpoint in the years ahead? Like, obviously, fastball velocity is off the charts. Like, pitch design's taking over. The stuff is really, really good. Like, wh what do you think the next step is on the hitting side of things? I would, I would love to actually hear these people say, base, like, a home, who, how's a home run ugly? Yeah, it's no. only if you're a pitcher, right? Or <laughs> yeah. how's a strikeout ugly? It's if you're a hitter, but, um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's just where the game has gone. That's the era we're in right now. We're at launch angle era, power era. Everyone wants to throw hard. Everyone has a program to throw harder. Everyone has a program to swing harder and hit the ball further. That's what everyone wants right now. All right, that's not going to last. I don't think that lasts because we're having a ton of injuries, yeah. <laughs> number one. Injuries have always been there, but I feel like, and I think you can speak on the, the spike in arm injuries starting at age 12 on now. Yeah. Absolutely. Because everyone looks on TV and sees triple digits, and they're going to go out and throw as hard as they can, regardless of their mechanics or, or if 
they take care of their arm, whatever it may be. They just want to go out and throw as hard as they can and then throw a slider off that as hard as they can. It's just not good for you. So I think the game eventually gets back. Um, I mean, I'm not going to say like old school baseball, but I think speed gets back in the game. Mm -hmm. I think small ball becomes a part of the game again in the next 10 years. Uh, we saw, I mean, you see it in the playoffs. We know important baseball games are won. I mean, yes, home runs. I know the era, like I said, we're in home, home runs and power are still playing a big part in the game. But Mm -hmm. in the play, in the playoffs, we saw, we saw guys bunting guys over. We saw hit and runs. You didn't see that during the regular season. So it's, it's interesting. To see guys do it in the, in the biggest games of the season, well, they they, they know it works. That's yeah. it's the root. It's pure baseball. It's what it is. I think we get back to it once uh, teams, like I said, start realizing that guys are being run into the ground and and that are not lasting as long. These big investments they're having to make into players, uh, the last three years of the contracts are just a waste of money because their bodies are broken down. I'm curious, like uh, I actually I listened to a a good podcast with um with Doug Lotta that not too long ago, and he was talking about like you know there's a there's the infatuation with exit velocity and launch angle, and you'll see guys that fall in love with a you know basically a a hit on a screen that looked terrible mechanically and would never actually play in a game. Like they're selling out for something that wouldn't be sustainable in the context of competition. You know, you obviously were around high level hitting for a long time as a, as a pro, but I'm, I'm curious now that you're, you're dealing with, you know, kids from, you know, really 13 all the way up into the college ranks plus our pro crowd. Like, are you seeing a trend with this? Like guys that are selling out for 95 mile an hour exit velocity at age 16, but they literally couldn't hit anything in a game. Like, is it, a, is it <laughs> yeah, scary to you? It is. And if you go and not to knock on perfect game because they do a lot of cool stuff, but to kind of hit on what you just said is like, you go watch them take a infielders below across the infield. They don't even care where the ball goes. They can <laughs> throw it in the stands and they get a number one ranking because they threw it as hard as they could or they, they had the highest below. That is a complete joke to me. Like it, it, if the guy doesn't catch it before the base runner steps on the bag, he's safe. So I don't <laughs> care how hard you throw it. That's just I saw that on some videos because there's a couple kids I was working with and I was watching their video from from their uh, showcase, and the kids are literally like crow hopping and throwing balls ten feet over the twenty feet over the first baseman's head, but they don't care because it's it's. 91 miles an hour. It's just the most ridiculous thing. It doesn't, it yeah. doesn't translate to anything successful on a baseball field. Well, and they're, and they're getting praised for it too. That's the challenging part. Exactly. What happens That's when they, they go out and make four errors and go 0 for 4 with three punch outs? Like they aren't ready for that failure because they've never experienced it. Like, That's exactly right. So, uh, actually speaking, you know, kind of to, I guess, turnarounds from failure is you were part of one of the most impressive turnarounds in major league history, right? So 2012 was, you know, somewhat of a debacle in Boston <laughs> and then yeah. 13, obviously a huge turnaround. And it wasn't just like a, a win loss thing. It was also very cultural. So what do you think the biggest difference was between 69 and 93 to 97 and 65 with a world series win? Uh, Veteran leadership. I mean, we, we, our, our core group of guys changed a little bit. I mean, we still had Pedroia and Poppy and, and those guys in 2012 and we struggled. Um, obviously leadership up top as far as managerial change from Bobby Valentine, uh, to John Farrell. Uh, but it started in spring training. Uh, Johnny Gomes came in. Mike Napoli came in. Uh, these guys made a big difference in our, in our clubhouse and our culture, like you said. 
And we said from day one in spring training, we were all just hanging out, talking in the clubhouse, like, hey, let's let's just go win this thing. And, you know, it sounds absurd and, and like, how could that work? But for some reason, everyone just bought into it and we got really close. And, uh, you know, we had the, the marathon bombings happen in Boston that year and um, gave us a little more purpose than just playing for ourselves. And, you know, the name on the back of the jersey. Uh, you playing for a city that was hurt and uh, down and needed an escape from the, watching the news, uh, just about someone attacking their their freedom and their and their city, and we took that personally. So uh, that just gave us a little bit of extra juice uh, to go out every day of that grind of a long season and and know it's it's about something much bigger than us winning baseball games. It's about our city and the people that live here who support us. And I think that carried us a lot further than we would have gone without that. You know, I'm curious, you were, you were joking with one of our minor league guys the other day about your first appearance in a world series game, right? (laughs) So tell the story. Uh, Yeah. I mean, we were talking about fear and failure and how just you're, it's paralyzing when you're, when you're, when you're scared of failing there's zero, you have zero chance of reaching any peak of athletic ability or any ability in any field whatsoever. Uh, when you're scared, when you're, when you, like you said, first time I got in that game, I mean, I was, I felt like my knees were shaking together, you know, it's it's the biggest game of anyone's life on that field. So, um, it's just something you have to conquer and get over and, and realize that like pressure is pressure and, everybody's feeling it here. This is, it, it's, it's a world series for a reason, you know? And I, you know, it's one of those situations you're praying about doesn't get hit to you because you're like, I feel like I don't even have a glove on right now. You know, it's just all, all I can do is feel the ground shaking, the people around me. Uh, but that's just, uh, that's why the older players and people who've been there, there's, there's value to that. And there's value to that experience because the next time that wouldn't happen because that's done over with. I experience you live through it. And you're fine and realize it's just another game. I, um, so the other day we were talking and, um, you know, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you're making the, the transition from playing to coaching. Um, and I know you have coaches in your family, like multiple coaches. And I, I've even heard you just in conversation do a lot of things very, very well, whether you recognize you're doing them or not, right? You use analogies. Mm-hmm. You use external focus cues way more than internal focus cues. Like, you know, you use people's name just in, in dialogue, things, you know, stuff that you usually people have to acquire over the course of time as second nature after years and years of coaching. And you, you've adapted those really quickly. I'm curious, like, as you reflect on a lot of the coaches and cues you've received over the years, um, you know, what cues really helped you? What made absolutely no sense to you? Um, are there, <laughs> are, are there things, you know, whether it was learning from your dad or learning from coaches? Yeah. In pro ball, what was it that really registered and really didn't register? Um, I think number one was definitely my dad. I mean, I I grew up in the field house with my dad, whether he was an athletic director, just the head coach, or OC, whatever it may be. Football was always the main thing. He's coached just about every sport, but football was his mainstay every single year of his career. <clears throat> and I think I've just seen so many people, their, their lives have just been changed by my dad. Like, mm-hmm there's grown men that still reach out to my dad or even buddies of mine who still talk about my dad and how they stories they have about him. And he's just the, everything he sacrificed and would put on the back burner just to help a family or a kid. 
And then the next year they're gone, they're gone to college, you know, and it starts over and he does it with another kid, another family, just year after year for, you know, 35 years. And, uh, he's still doing it. So, I mean, just, he's always had the capability of, of gaining someone's trust, whether that kid, whatever the background may be, uh, they, they can just, he can always find a way to relate to them and make, and let them trust him. And I think that's the biggest thing with coaching is, is gaining that trust. Um, as a hitting coach, my best hitting coaches were always the guys who, who, I could tell they hurt with me when I was struggling. And then when I did well, they wanted to party with me. And you know, it's, it's the guys that are just cookie cutter and feel like they're just there to punch their time card and go home and just get their paycheck. Those are the guys you don't want to be around. Those are the guys you have zero trust. You know that in a meeting, they're not going to pull for you and they're not going to fight for you. the, the other guys, they would do anything for you. So it all comes down to trust, understanding, and then just be able to relate to the kids. What about like the actual cues? Like, you know, some of that speaks to characteristics, qualities. Were there things that you heard in the cage that never resonated with you or like that one aha moment when something really clicked? Um, that, that's tough. I don't know if I can put my finger on, on just one thing because I, I honestly, hitting coaches in the big leagues, um, are, are, are different. They're, they're more there for just support, uh, because so many guys are, that guy, you're professionals and, and you're paid a lot of money to do your job. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I honestly feel like I learned more from my teammates than I did my coaches in the big leagues. And that's not a knock on my coaches. That's just the nature of the beast and how it is. Um, the hitting coaches do a lot, especially with scouting reports and getting ready for games and all that. But, as far as actually sitting down and talking, hitting, I did that more with my teammates. And like I said, just using my eyes and my ears. And especially as a young guy, you sit and just, I was blessed with David Ortiz, Jacoby Ellsbury, Dustin Pedroia. Like the list goes on and on of veteran guys who were great players for a long time that I got to, I got a front row seat to their careers mm-hmm. uh, on the field, off the field, in the cages, in the locker room you get to know these people, you're around them more than their families. So um, I was lucky enough to just be able to sit back and be a student of those guys. So I, I don't know if I can put fingers on, on one thing or another, but I think just being able to be around some of the best players in the game was, was crucial for me. Well, I think that probably speaks to a lot of your work with the pro side now is it's, it's probably far more about relating to them and talking approach than it actually is talking mechanics. Um, would you agree? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I know we were sitting in with a couple guys the other day and I'm, I'm telling you like these guys mechanics are like really, really good. They're better than mine ever were. And, uh, these guys are an A ball, you know, they just got drafted last year, you know, uh, their, their swings are so much more advanced. Uh, I think there's just so much more to learn out there now. Uh, there's so much more at their fingertips for them to just type in something in their phone and pull up just about any video they want on themselves or another player. Um, so I, I, yeah, I mean, it's just the era we're in right now. I think players are just so much better. Yeah, you you emphasize to those guys too, like you always, you always want to build your plan around what you do well, not necessarily what pitchers do poorly. I mean, give me an example from your career, like that 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 sticks out at you, like where you stuck to your guns as opposed to like maybe maybe having a a moment where you worked in you know in contrast to what a scouting report would have told you to do versus a particular pitcher. 
Yeah, like I said early early in my career, like I was really good at just using the big part of the field. So, say I'm facing a guy like Justin Masterson who was just in the best in like the peak of his career. He's throwing 96 mile per hour, like some of the nastiest sinkers yeah. I've ever like. The ball looks literally like it would be a foot and a half, two feet outside, and it's coming back, and it's like middle away, mm-hmm. right? So this guy throws the ball, and your eyes tell you it's middle, and you're like, okay, I know it's going to run, so it's still going to be on the plate, and it just, you hit it off your lizard skin, right? <laughs> and, and it's just, um, and then you go back for your next at bat thinking, okay, I got to pull here, like I got to get the head out. But those were the situations where I would stick to my guns and say, all right, I'm, I gotta stick to my plans, you know, look out over the plate because he did have a good slider too. He wasn't just throwing the sinker. So, and he mixed it up well to me, but he, I got in trouble with him when I, when I would give in to his, to his strength, right? Which was he wanted you to swing at that ball that runs off the plate in because it looks like it's on the plate. So if I stuck to it and just tried to look out over the plate, Stay in the middle of the field. I had a lot of success because then I could get to his slider and, and he would hang the slider for me because he, he liked to throw it over the plate. So if, if I was to get pull happy, I wouldn't touch his slider. Absolutely. All right. So you, you talked about hitters logs. Who needs it and what should it include? And you even said you, oh, you wish man. you had done it earlier in your career, right? Yeah. So we were forced to do it in the Red Sox organization, uh, up until double A. Once you got to double A, you had to, the choice and then triple A that didn't even have it. Um, I hated it, man. It felt like homework that, you know, I had to do after the game when really all I wanted to do was like eat and go to sleep. <laughs> you know, I was just a kid, you know, I didn't understand, uh, the depth of the at bats. And like I said, double A was when I was starting to build a, a plan and, uh, an approach to the play and a more of an understanding of what I was doing and what guys were trying to do to me. So in double A, I really didn't mind doing it because I actually had things to write down in a ball, rookie ball, you know, the first three years, I hated it because I didn't understand it. Honestly, I didn't like it because I didn't understand what to write down because I didn't have a plan. I didn't have an approach. Um, I was just running on pure athleticism and I could get away with it because I was an a ball and just about everyone is doing that. And I felt like I could just out, athlete everybody uh, you get higher levels you get triple a big leagues you're facing guys who've been there before and you just simply have to have an approach so back to the you know it would be the count the result what was my plan what would i what would i do differently and you know you just write those down and i feel like that was um if i took that more seriously earlier in my career i would have probably developed a plan and approach and uh just a better way of thinking at the plate earlier in my career, just because I would have put more emphasis in actually thinking about my at-bats. <laughs> awesome. I mean, and how does the focus change for a, a high school kid versus a, a pro ball guy, right? Like, so in pro ball, you're going to see some of the same arms over and over again. If you're a high school kid, you might never see another arm again if you're on the summer ball circuit or anything like right. that. Is it all come back to writing what you did well, what you did poorly, or is it is it something more involved? Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't think you need to do it in high school, honestly. I feel like that's a little early. Some people might say that's wrong. I don't know. But I think pro ball, um, even, even maybe college where you're in a, you know, a conference where you're going to see certain guys on Friday and Saturday nights. Um, I think it could be, it's good for you to have a binder of it and go back and say, all right, this, you know, you might not have all the video you need 
in a ball you don't have all the video you need or i didn't when we played yeah they nowadays now, you can but, get whatever you want between, yeah depending on the yeah. organization but right so you know i would use it to to go back to okay i faced this guy a month ago how to get me out what was my approach well, here's the results i did really well so let's let's stick with that approach against this guy but be aware that he probably knows that I and I homered off a of first pitch breaking ball. He's probably not going to lay me one in there. So, you know that you know that kind of builds my approach for that game because I can go back and look at how he got or how the uh, at bat went the previous time we faced each other. One of the things I so you're you're a pseudo media member now. You're you're doing some <laughs> on air stuff for CBS Sports. You know, uh, your wife Jenny's obviously in the sports media as well. Mm-hmm. And you, when you first started doing that, you said to me that you won't be that guy who forgets how hard this game was. Correct. Um, you know, <laughs> and you also played in the single most challenging sports media market on the planet in Boston. Right. Um, and one of the things I'm really curious about, like, you even just talked about it, like, you know, like a lot of your struggles had to do with like getting hit by a pitch on your wrist. Like it, it set you back a lot and it, it changed your bat speed. It changed the, mm-hmm. the level of comfort you have in at bats. Just in, in in the painting with broad strokes, how in the dark is the media most of the time? Um, most of the time, yeah, it's <laughs> tough now because number one, my wife's sitting behind me listening to me, and I'm not <laughs> going to bash the media. No, but um, I'm not going to say they're in the <laughs> don't, don't uh, but uh, I wouldn't say they're in the dark. I mean, nowadays I feel like they know way more than they ever have. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just so many outlets, so many pressers. There's so many opportunities for them to get information. Mm-hmm. Um, not everyone's Bill Belichick uh, and and can just stone face and yeah. not give you any information. <laughs> um, you know, information gets out now. There's just too many opportunities for it to get out. Yeah. But um, as far as, like, what the players are actually dealing with or actually feeling or thinking, yeah, they just don't know because players yeah. – they don't want you to know. Yeah. That, that's it. Let's I mean, just say the average Joe, Joe on Twitter probably doesn't know enough to say that a guy sucks. You know, he sucks so bad that he made it to the big leagues as one of the top point oh 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 five percent of baseball right. players ever to play. Yeah, don't game. even get me on social media. Don't even get me going on that. That's just, <laughs> you know, that's just gives so many people have a platform to say whatever they want. And I get it. That's part of the game. That's fans. Yeah. That's. That's just how it is. That's how people are. So you, you can't let that get to you. But yeah, I don't even. It's a hard question to answer. Yeah, that <laughs> one's tough about being in the dark because, like I said, there's just so many opportunities for them to get as much information as they need now. Mm-hmm. And people are really good at it, especially in the Boston media market. Like you said, they're so in-depth. And most of the time you see these stories come out and you're going – how, how did they even, uh, even in the clubhouse most of the time, you're going, how did they know that? So there's always somebody that leaks something, whether it's a player, whether it's somebody working for the team. It just always seems that something always gets leaked. Absolutely. All right. So lightning round, this is the fun part. Oh, geez. These are, these are quick questions. You can be as, you can be as detailed as you want. Okay. What, what hitters do you like to watch and why? Ooh, okay. Obviously, there's. Well, you got to start with Mike Trout. In yeah. my opinion, I think he's. When it's all said and done, he's going to be the best player of all time. Yeah. He's already passed Jeter and and War, which is mm-hmm. a complete joke to me because we all know how good Jeter is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you have guys like Pedroia. I like the small guys with power because it's interesting how they generate power. Mm-hmm. Pedroia, not a huge, you know, huge power guy, but I just love how he would grind out in a bat and just that. Uh, just that fight in him of where 
you're not going to get anything past me. Like you could literally bounce balls up there and he's fouling them off, fouling them off, fouling them off. And then he gets a knock. You know, I just love those at bats and cause I got to see that in person. Um, Bregman, Altuve, those are two guys. We won't get into sign stealing. I know <laughs> you're going to say something. We'll leave it alone. Uh, we'll leave it alone. <laughs> Regardless, these guys are really good on the road too. Um, Bregman's confidence at the plate, I think is second to none. Um, when he fails, nothing phases him. Like watch his face. He never, he's so even keel. He's never, he never rides that roller coaster. I really like that about him. And then Altuve's like a more powerful version of Pedroia. Just a little guy yep. who grinds out at bats, can hit any pitch at his forehead to his shoelaces. He can put a barrel on it. And that's just so fun to watch. All right. Mariano Rivera gave up 71 home runs in his career. <laughs> who hit the last one of his career? Oh, yours truly. That's my like claim to fame is. That's a Jeopardy Mo question deep. someday right there. I, I hope so. I hope so. That's one Jeopardy question I can actually get right. I think you're a, are your career one for three off him. Is that what it was? Uh, like yeah. That. I'd like blown up, bat, ground ball to second, take a strikeout, and then the homer to right. Uh, his, his, that was the last one he gave up. That's a decent story to go along with that. So he blows the lead, ties it, that homer ties it up, hit a homer to right off a cutter away. Shocker, right? <laughs> and, and like I said earlier in this, really good players at the tail end of their career, look out. That was your thing. I'm gonna get you. That was my thing. I got petted the day before. You're, you're like the, uh, like the 18 year old phenom who shows up at the YMCA for like the, the middle aged man basketball game and just yeah, falls, and, falls and out. Everybody leaves and they're like, <laughs> who is that guy? <laughs> yeah. So, oh, back to the, the most story. So he blows the lead. We end up winning extra innings. I come in. There's a Mariano Rivera jersey hanging in my locker, and I'm thinking, all right, this is my second year in the big leagues. I'm still a young guy on a veteran team. Somebody's just messing with me. They got a jersey. That's awesome. I get closer. There's a note, and then the jersey signed. It says, Mariano Rivera to Will, last to wear 42. Like, best of luck. I was like, Jesus, this is awesome. Okay. So I open an envelope. There's a note. And it says, Dear Will, hope you always remember this home run. I know I always will. Best of luck in your career, Mariano Rivera. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> That's so pro. And then, you know, I saw him like the next year, end of 2014, because Jeter's last game was at Fenway mm-hmm. uh, to end the year. And, uh, he came in for that for like the first, throw out the first pitch or ceremony or something. And I'm hitting in the cage before the game. And, uh, I just hear someone behind me. As I'm hitting in the cage and it's him, he's standing there, still remembers me, shakes my hand, gives me a hug, asks me how I'm doing. It's just, he's so professional, man. It's just, yeah. it was really cool to get to meet him and obviously hit the homer. <laughs> it's a good story, man. All right. So give, uh, teenage Will Middlebrooks some advice. What do you teenage, got? Teenage, lift some weights, man. Yeah. Gosh, well, I didn't lift. I didn't lift in high school. It's easier to make a, a, a fast guy strong than it is to make a strong guy fast. And you could run, Absolutely. Right? I, you know, I lifted some, but back to the very start of our podcast, mm-hmm. I played sports, different sports, and they overlapped all year. So I never got like an off season. Some, in the summer when I wasn't at school, I was playing Legion baseball. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have a time where I just could build myself and 
lift and get better and faster and stronger. I just played sports. That's all I did. Nice. All right. Game three, 2013 World Series. Uh, Alan Craig, actually, I worked with Alan at the end of his career. I got both of you guys after the fact, so I don't have a dog in the fight. Did He's you, a great did, guy. Did you inter- and, and actually a future teammate of yours right after that happened, right? Yeah, I got a good story about that, too. So did you, did you interfere with Alan Craig at third base? Uh, by rule, yes, I interfered with him. So but right. so the throw, they got the throw right. But mm-hmm. how is Jim Joyce always in the middle of these calls? Too, <laughs> by the way, um, so the throw took me into him, into the baseline. We collided. We both go down, and I'm like five feet inside the baseline at this mm-hmm. point, laying down on my stomach. He actually tripped over me. He went to like my legs came up because I started to like push myself up to go mm-hmm. get the ball because I didn't know how far it had gotten away from me. Mm-hmm. And um, I go to push myself up, and he was stepping over me at the time, and he tripped over my butt. His foot hit me like in my hip, and he had a bum ankle at the time. He he had a flat tire, so he wasn't moving well, anyways. And um, he stepped right on my butt, like hit my hip, fell down. And I, you know, by rule, it was the right call. But I, you know, I run in down after they call interference to home plate to the umpires, going, you know, what am I supposed to do? And and they're. Jim Joyce looked me in the face and said, and you can see it on the video if you look it up on YouTube. He goes, you got to disappear. <laughs> and That's I was amazing. speechless. I just walked in the dugout and just stood and went in and stood in my locker in full uniform and just waited for the media to come dismantle my soul. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's incredible. We'll have to get Alan on at a future date to to, to present his side of the, uh, the story. Okay, perfect. Yeah, I would love that. All right. So uh, you come from a family of coaches. As as you make the transition into coaching, what's the single most important lesson you've learned from the other coaches in your family? <laughs> lesson? Yeah. Um, There's probably a lot. Don't of them. okay. Yeah. Don't. I, I can say learn this from my dad, and everything goes back to my dad when it goes to coaching because I have so much respect for what he's done for so long, and we we touched on that earlier about how he good how good he is with it, but I think not bringing not bringing stuff home. Yeah. I think he was really good. You hear my wife laughing in the background. <laughs> that was as a player. All right. <laughs> um, but just not bringing stuff home. I think being able to separate, you know, yes, you're going to come home and you're going to have work to do, but don't bring those emotions and whether it's highs or lows, be able to separate work and coaching and your family. And I think my dad did a really good job of that, of just being a dad and not always just being a coach. That's good stuff. All right. So folks can find you on Twitter. It's at Middlebrooks. They can find you on Instagram. It's at CSP underscore hitting and put out some really good content this off season. Once these pro guys really ramp up and we are absolutely fired up to have you helping out at the facility as we get into this, this new space, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. So um, Will, thanks so much for taking the time, man. This was really helpful, and um, I'm sure a lot of people will really benefit. You got it, E. This was a blast. All right, man. Thanks for doing it. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.